Welcome back to The Reset Rebel with me, Joe Yule. And today's show is coming from an incredibly atmospheric spot on the island. As you can probably hear the uh, sort of cacophony, really, in the background uh, of nature at its highest amphitheatre. Perched on the end of Kalanova Beach, we're kind of sitting almost in the woods um, by the Chiringuito Can Colorway which is like a fish shack, uh, the little blue one right at the very far left as you look out to see. You've probably uh, seen it if you've been here before. And uh, we're just sort of tucked behind there. And um, I'm really, really chuffed to have today's guest on the show, which um, isn't probably in the spot that you would think I would be interviewing him. um, Because, of course, he is very, very well known for his incredibly... uh, legendary Balearic sets down at Citrincha. Um, and it is, of course, the man himself, John. Joe, very good afternoon. Very nice to be here, away from Citrincha, because I don't often get off to see other beaches. <laughs> I'm sure you don't. I mean, I'm sure you see quite enough of that beach, really, to be honest, in lots of ways. Yes, I've had enough of it. <laughs> 25 years you've been playing there. That's, um, that's a lot of time. I mean, your, your sets are not really the average kind of length for a DJ anyway, so it's it's almost like a full day in the office that you put in there when you do play down at Citrincha. Yeah, I was always get against getting an office job, um, or at least the timing of it, but I seem to have slipped back into that. But um, at least I'm playing music and I'm on the beach. And yeah, this is my 25th year, which has gone very quickly. And I still feel very young. You look it, I must say. You're looking very dashing in that wonderful uh, sort of tropical Hawaiian ensemble you've got on today. Your shirt is, oh, this um, is, is epic. Oh, shirt. This is what they wear in... Um, Thailand when they have the water festival and they're really cheap shirts it's actually my only clean shirt <laughs> well, when you play for shirt. sort of yeah 12 hours a day I'm sure you haven't got no. much time to do your own washing no no but you buy these shirts in Thailand they're really cheap and um, you buy the, the, the water festival lasts for uh, six uh, three days and you buy six shirts for like a tenner and because uh, you get completely soaked that's I'm wearing my song crunch shirt is this when you sort of revert back to sort of, you know, being a two-year-old and run around with your little uh, water pistol and basically everyone's just there having a one big old, uh, yeah, kind of little play? Uh, yeah, everybody is, you just get drenched. Everybody is just wearing, um, everybody is just shooting water at everybody. It's, it's the craziest festival you've ever, you could possibly, and probably the best New Year festival I've ever had because it goes for three days. It's totally peaceful, and everybody's just, you know, they buy these giant water pistols, and there's just water everywhere, and everybody gets soaked. So, yeah, that's my sort of new year, and then I come to Ibiza to start the new summer. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little path that you tread between the two spots, but I think that maybe we should just instigate a song cran in Ibiza. Surely that would be a good thing to do. I mean, they're sort of doing that anyway in San Antonio and parts of Playa del Bosa. It's uh, yeah. you know, the water parties that they have, but wouldn't it be cool? Like, maybe we could have a little day at Citrincha. It would be good. I don't know if... Um, because I don't know if it works in Thailand because everybody's very peaceful. I think you would probably disturb some people here and maybe a fight would break out. <laughs> I don't know if it would work in Europe. <laughs> But the extraordinary thing in Asia is that this, this happens and all the Thai people join in and you almost get the Thai people ganging up against the tourists. It's their revenge. <laughs> and they pelt each other th- with water, with these massive guns everywhere, all over the Bangkok in the city or wherever you are in Thailand. 
and nobody gets offended and there's very little security there's very very few police around which is extraordinary because you think a festival like that like Notting Hill in London is full of security and that's just a small area we're talking about a whole country <laughs> pelting each other with water three days in a row non-stop <laughs> and um, there's no security and nobody seems to be injured or anything. So I don't know if it would work at Ibiza or in Europe. <laughs> I reckon like World War Three would break out, not just with a water pistol. I can imagine some really irate yeah, yeah, tourists, yeah, like yeah, really yeah. walking down the road in their sort of Versace and uh, their Gucci sunglasses and their sort yeah. of, you know, Louboutin heels. And uh, the next thing you know, there would be World War... It would be big, big trouble. I can't yet. It would be fashion wars, wouldn't it? I suppose, yeah. I mean, people dress up over here. Whereas people tend to... Well, the clothing's cheaper anyway. And as I said, you've got these cheap shirts, which may look quite nice. They don't look bad, do they? I was really admiring it when I first ran into <laughs> I it. So clearly it's... Uh, two quid. <laughs> <laughs> two quid. Bargain. Uh, you wouldn't find that in Ibiza either, to be able to sort of uh, furnish no. yourself with a, a sort of water pistol fighting wardrobe that's suitable for the occasion. Yep. Um, and, and I just love the fact that, you know, obviously over there, there's this sort of mentality of... of playfulness and of course yes. people come to Ibiza to play I mean that Ibiza is one giant playground in, in lots of ways but I, I it's a very different kind of um, mentality in terms of the kind of sense of childishness perhaps and, and real uh, acceptance I think perhaps over there where you know obviously everyone's into it they're onto it mm. it's a bit like that holly festival they all chuck loads of uh, different coloured paints at each other as well exactly yeah it's, it's the same thing it's the same um, same idea and yeah, I guess uh, Ibiza is a playground, so uh, yeah, I've never grown up. <laughs> no ways to grow up. My mother always said, grow up. And then I went to Ibiza, and I think she realised that it wasn't possibly necessary to grow up if you're in a playground. <laughs> which is your favourite playground? I mean, you basically spend half of the year in both destinations, so which, you know, I mean, it's difficult to compare and contrast in some ways, but not in so many others. Uh, Asia's new to me, I suppose, because I've only been going there for 20, 10 years and I've been here for 25 years doing the same job. And in Asia, it's also the whole you know, beach scene, beach club scene is opening up as it has been all over the world, whether it's South America or Europe. But it's getting really big in Asia. So um, six months there is providing me with enough work to stay there and to keep traveling. And it's a new audience as well, which is really excites me. So I find Asia very exciting because I'm playing to a new audience who haven't heard my style of music. And, um, and so far, so good. It's been really accepted and it's really nice to switch people on to a different kind of sound. I mean, yeah, to be taking sort of Balearic vibes over to, to well, to Bali or to, to Thailand is, yeah. yeah, definitely, I'm sure, something quite new. I and mean, they probably don't have anybody else that really does I mean, it's definitely not... I hate that word, chill out. I wouldn't call that what you play at all. It is actually quite unique. Uh, yeah, and it was funny. When I was in Thailand, I played in Koh Phangan, which was on a beach. It was a beach party, but it was in, like, a techno club. And it wasn't like the beach parties um, or the beach clubs here where they're serving food. This is, was just music. And all the DJs were playing before me. They were all playing, like, quite hard house. And I thought, I'm in the epicenter of... Uh, trance music and I'm like, what what do I play so it was a bit of a dilemma I was very so I started off with Swan Lake I got a kind of a beaty version of um, you know, or rather the, the Sugar Plum Fairy um, 
lengths and um, and then just played my style and they hadn't heard that because primarily what they heard is sort of harder house and night music so I, it was uh, it was great as I said playing playing different music to people who were expecting something different you know? I think that is I mean the beauty of what you do it's very difficult really to sum up uh, even in my own words what it is exactly that you do but having bought your uh, mixed CDs and, and mixes over the years from Sir Trincher I think there was yeah, most of them are about two hours long it's about ten hours of music when you buy all five in the summer remember no holding back pull out everything you've got even your secret stash and you know having kind of listened to those endlessly and used them actually quite a bit for my yoga classes um, you know you just like expect the unexpected you never know what's going to happen next musically what you're going to bring in or weave together and it's, it's it's a, just as almost like a soundscape. Yeah, that's my problem actually, is because I like so, so many styles of music. <laughs> it's, the, the big problem is actually trying to blend them all together and make it work. Uh, it would be much easier if I just played one genre like most DJs who uh, niche themselves as a trance or a house or a techno DJ. But I tend to like all styles of music and, um, and as I said, try and blend as many different styles Within, I actually challenged myself and said, right, you've got to play, within an hour I've got to play different styles as in African music or reggae style music or global music, um, different BPMs, so I've got to mix all the, the tempo up. And, um, and every, with every track, change the style slightly. So it's, <laughs> it, it has a possibility of not working and the whole thing collapsing like a house of cards, but if I can keep the house of cards up, then it's great. <laughs> has it has it collapsed before? Not really, no. I mean, I, I managed to... Yeah, things do go wrong when you DJ. Um, and, and I think most of us could, if we drop our, leave, leave our ego out of it, um, could probably confess to many things going wrong whilst you're DJing. Um, especially back in the vinyl days, you know, just there was... You know, you've got a needle which could bounce around and records that's good scratch and all that sort of thing it's much easier now but um yeah and no, I'm, I'm happy with that um that that's not knowing exactly what I'm going to play next actually um it keeps me on my toes and um makes every mix kind of exciting and if I didn't have that excitement then I'll just hang up my headphones and it would, it would get boring I suppose um so to keep my in this business for the amount of time that I have, I've got to keep it exciting. <laughs> You've got to keep that kind of uh, juvenile or childlike excitement that you have. Like, well, I found when I bought my first single and um, my seven-inch vinyl single when I was a kid, and dashed back home to play it. I couldn't wait to get it on the turntable. I nearly broke it because I was so excited by um, the excitement of putting it on the turntable and listening to it. What so, was that track? You have to tell us. What was that track? It was. Um, Cat Stevens, I think. <laughs> no, actually, it was Humble Pie, Natural Born Woman, <laughs> which I heard with my dad in a record shop, and he actually bought it for me. It was a kind of, um, it was a rock track. Intriguing. It wasn't what I expected you to say. I don't know what, but to be fair, like as we just discussed, expect the unexpected with Johnson Treasure. So you never know what is going to come uh, 
out next. I think mine actually was yeah. um, Reet Petite. Oh, it reminds me of something. So I, I, I could sing it to you, but I just don't know. <laughs> don't know the video was sort of plasticine videos. Yeah. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pl- like little plasticine men dancing around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, the first, probably the first vinyl I was given, actually, as a kid, as a kid was The Jungle Book. And I suppose it, I, and I still play the Jungle Book. <laughs> yeah, so. That goes, uh, I'm the king of the jungle. I love that song. That's a great track. And so many other besides from the Jungle Book. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town. And be just like the other men. I'm tired of walking around. Oh, yeah. And Teddy Bates. That was, um, so yeah, the original of that. I occasionally play that. <laughs> Teddy Bear's Picnic, if you go down in the woods today. Yes, yeah. Just where we are right now, kind of, really. I think we should have a little rendition. Yeah, we just need a pot of honey. <laughs> <laughs> and some porridge, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe a nice, fresh uh, dorada a la plancha. It's a, it's a great little fish restaurant here, for sure. And um, that's probably one of the great things about Citrinta, isn't it? You probably get well well fed there, I guess, before and after your, your sets. Uh, yeah, now I tend to have breakfast and some juice in the morning, and then I can't really eat when I'm playing, so I actually lose weight in the Ibiza in the summer, because I can't eat, and I'm playing in the daytime a lot. Um, so yeah, there is, I, I'm absolutely starving when I finish, but um, I tend to eat less food here, and, and I'm standing up. I may have a glass of sherry. Oh, it's not like sherry, a rosé. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Sounds like my auntie. No, not sherry. Get the old sherry out. Yeah, go, uh, glass of rose. Glass of rose by about six o'clock. Nice. I mean, but you play for sort of eight, eight, nine hours, so that's a, that's a lot of uh, fasting, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, um, you know, I've, 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 when I first started playing at Trench, the reason I played for eight hours was because I thought the police are going to stop this. And they're going to close it down. So I played like, uh, literally like every day was my last day. So I thought this cannot carry on like this. And my boss was telling me to turn the volume up and play harder sound. I said, no, 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 no. The police are going to stop this. <laughs> this could be my last day. Let's stop, you know, let's just keep it, let's keep it reasonably quiet. But yeah, 25 years later and we're still going. And did the police ever come along and like have a little look and try and shut you down? Yeah, we, I think we used to get problems. Well, the rumour was we were getting problems with the clubs because the clubs didn't want um, people partying on the beach all day because they wouldn't go to the clubs. So, I don't know. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, we, we did have some times when the police uh, stopped the music and then it started again, then it got loud and then it stopped again. So it seemed we could sort of go around in seven-year cycles. <laughs> I mean, things have really changed. I mean, I hate that question. I'm sure you must get it all the time about how things have changed. But obviously, I stepped into your office, as you call it, yep. the other week. And, um, you know, you've got a sound limiter on there. And, you know, you can't obviously bang it out all day long, perhaps like you used to when you first began. But I kind of love the story about, you know, how you came to actually start playing at Citrinja. You kind of came here. Um, it's at the island back in your 30s, 20s, early 20s. Uh, first came in my 20s, so I, I came here the first time in, my, in the 80s and then thought I wanted to come back. And I came back in 93 and uh, started playing at Citrencher then. But yeah, and I came over here on a, on a crazy bus with a couple of friends 
and um, and we, maybe we had a few parties, uh, private parties booked, and then eventually I got the job at Citrencia. I think you know the story, but I think no, but I like the story. You have to tell us, like you know, how this sort of came about, the actual job itself, because it's it's a good little story. Uh, well, yeah, I was um, sort of. I, I, we did these parties um, just around the corner from here, actually, around Calarena. And in um, Terry Thomas's old house in Cantalias, we had this big party. And it was just at the time when there had been a, quite a few kind of, how can you say, free parties on the island. And the police were just beginning to stop them. So um, it was one of the sort of last free wild parties on the island, I suppose. Um, and that was great, but then we, we were looking for work, and um, my friends were getting you know, a bit angry with me that I couldn't find them work either. So um, they, they, they left, and I ended up um, homeless on the island for two or three weeks, and lived on the beach, and lived in the back of somebody's car. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I had absolutely nothing. So, you know, the, Ibiza is the sort of last place you really want to be. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be with somebody with nothing on the island. I don't want to be one of those, but I was. So it was a bit of a predicament. Um, but I eventually um, found the job um, at Citrencia, sort of by default. I'd been going there before and thought, wow, this is a great place. And they had a, a DJ playing there on, um, on a very small sound system. And um, I had this big sound system and my record collection. So, um, yeah, I was hitchhiking and I got knocked off the road and there was a big accident and then I stepped back up after being knocked out and everything and the first car that stopped was the owner of Citrencia and he picked me up and took me to the beach and um, I cleaned myself up, he gave me something to eat and I crashed out on the beach and then the next day, the DJ at Citrencia, he didn't turn up. And the boss told me that he had all my sound equipment. And um, let's set it up and let's get things started. <laughs> so I couldn't believe my luck, really. And uh, yeah, my first day there, I, just, I couldn't believe, I was ecstatic and I couldn't wait to start the next day. <laughs> And 25 years later, here I am. So, I mean, like, on the on the basis of that story, like, there must be a lot of people that come over here to sort of try their luck and, and see if they can, you know, get a little foot up on the on the ladder in some way, shape or form. But I think to come from absolutely nothing and think that your, your days here are, are numbered to uh, literally, you know, getting the best job of your whole life and you're still at it 25 years <laughs> later. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty decent hand of fate. Yeah, yeah, I think, and actually, that sort of happened in my life a lot. Um, um, a lot of extreme things have happened in my life, so and that was pretty extreme. Sort of, uh, I was literally thinking, well, I couldn't go back to England. I couldn't go back and um, fail. I suppose my pride took me here, and I thought I've got to make it as a DJ. And my pride refused to let me leave, although I could have quite easily. I really was quite messed up but it, you know, it was only three weeks so what's that in your life um, of not knowing where you are or what's going on <laughs> I'm sure we've all been through something like that <laughs> 
So before you came here and uh, became a beach bum for three weeks, what were you doing that led you to think, right, that's it? Um, uh, what was the catalyst for coming here to the island? Um, it was through meeting a friend, because um, I'd already been to a beach before, and there was this guy, um, Olivia, who had been on the island for some time, and he was one of these, he was Brazilian, and he was a very flamboyant artist. And he befriended one of my best friend's mother, who were parents. And he was always saying, oh, come to Ibiza, come to Ibiza, and you're a DJ, and he liked my music. And um, so we set up this party here. And that was it. So I came really on the invitation of Olivier. And, um, yeah. And everything kind of worked out after that, thankfully. (laughs) You know, it feels like... You know, you've been there for 25 years, like playing obviously this, these incredible soundscapes. I mean, I was there last last Monday, and I spent about eight hours there actually, uh, listening to just quite an eclectic mashup of, of all sorts of different genres. I loved, but I feel like you know, you, that's obviously working here in Ibiza. You've got gigs all over the island. I think actually one of the last times, uh, the, the first time I actually probably met you was at Sunset Ashram, and uh, you were playing a, an incredible sunset um, session there. And we, we got chatting, we were talking about your little kind of um, forays to Asia to uh, probably do the sort of, you know, uh, retox, detox path of going over there and like taking a little bit of a break from, from the island lifestyle, which I guess is quite intrinsic to, to being a DJ because it must be quite hard to stay healthy on an island like this doing the job that you do. Uh, it used to be, um, but then I was younger, so because uh, <laughs> I used to play at Trencher, um every day. Um, seven, eight hours a day. Mondays, go to the Manu Mission Hotel, go and play at Manu Mission, go back to the Manu Mission Hotel, <laughs> go to the beach, play all day. And um, eventually, yeah, there was a lot of temptation. Um, and um, I'm, I'm no angel. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I, it kind of, I went to my limits, I suppose, by the sort of mid-90s. I kind of reached my limits of flying high on the island and knew it was my limit. Um, although there were a lot more people around me going to a far higher you've got to be very careful on the island I'll quote the Icarus effect you know you can party crazy you can realise your craziest fantasies and dreams in Ibiza and uh, like Icarus you can go as high as you like um, but eventually your feathers will melt and you will crash so um, yeah probably a great place to crash into Ibiza but you crash all the same and that can be quite dangerous so um, yeah I mean you know DJs I've always wanted to have longevity the music always comes first and um, I want to survive that Um, (laughs) and these days I get as much pleasure if not more pleasure from um, seeing people react to music whether it's my music or whether I'm DJing or just seeing people's reaction to music I love my own reaction to music I like dancing myself um, before, you know, kind of my earliest teenage memory, memory is sort of actually re- realising I could dance and I enjoyed dancing. It was like, wow. So, um, yeah, DJing is all about that now, rather than getting too high. <laughs> I, I think I loved it the other day when you sort of told me one of the best reactions you'd seen and you were like, yeah, I just kind of love making people cry. <laughs> but that seems yeah. to happen a lot with your music. Yeah, yeah, and I was playing, um, and everybody was dancing, actually. It was a, a sort of a beach party in Talamanca, and I played this remix of uh, Marvin Gaye track, I Want You, and this couple, actually, they just 
they were in love obviously it was quite romantic and they just burst out crying so yeah um you know music does bring those emotions and i, I think um especially being english you know we've got a really strong culture of music so um you know, certainly old songs uh, but for me you know you can relate to so many memories and stuff like that so um, yeah, and romantic moments, and music covers all, all emotions, really. Many emotions which we can't express through words, but the music takes us to um, the right place. Do you think that's what got you into music, being able to express yourself fully in that way? Um, I probably got into music because I probably couldn't express myself, my own emotions, but through music I, I found a place. Um, and you, you know, you, yeah, it, it's um, yeah, it's very emotional. It's all very deep, I guess. Yeah. You're not going to cry on this, John. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I saw a little wobble there at the bottom lip. No, 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 I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know. Well, I think isn't that why most of the clubs are full in Ibiza because people back home can't be themselves. They can't let out that inner child that inner pain that inner trauma they come here they take boatloads of drugs and all of a sudden they can access that freedom of expression and just like you know do and be anything they want to be in a nightclub on dc 10 dance floor you know i call it my happy place where it was in my 20s because right. i was all of a sudden i found a piece of myself that was maybe missing somehow yeah no i think it's been an extraordinary revolution the whole dance movement from from the early days from the from the 80s um and never before have you seen anywhere in England a whole sort of movement of people from kids from all over, all over the country, all over England, and um, dance together. But that, that had never happened before. Um, so yeah, now it's become a global, global thing, and people are dancing to save the world, dancing for charity, dancing, 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 dancing. <laughs> I think like healing. Uh, a lot of healing occurs on the dance floor and I, and I see it a lot, you know, not just from raving here in Ibiza or, you know, from, from this new kind of phenomenon that is ecstatic dance, you know, parties without uh, drugs and booze. And I, and I remember, you know, what, 20 years ago when Danny Tanaglia created that club final, which was a booze-free venue. And now, all of a sudden, it feels like sort of a lot of hippies here or, or people more in the healing community are you know, inventing this kind of idea of like booze-free, healthy uh, partying, drinking cacao, getting high on life in other ways through breath work, and then almost having these like shamanic experiences, which I, I you know, a lot of people obviously taking the mickey out of it and saying it's, you know, they shouldn't sort of uh, trendify uh, spirituality in the clubs on the island like Woo Moon, or there was another party at Privilege that started out recently. Um, called Shine, I think it was called. And I think, you know, what's, what's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with encouraging? Yes, the clubs aren't going to make so much money out of it. Maybe that's why they don't like it, because people aren't getting, you know, 10 euro bottles of water, or, you know, they're not spending boatloads of cash on, on booze and taking all the drugs, which makes them more thirsty. But I think ultimately, um, it's a good thing to see this uh, kind of uprising of people wanting to be a little bit more conscious and party in a healthy way. What are your thoughts? Yes, definitely, definitely. I'm all for it. Um, if, if anything, the, the, the booze slows you down anyway, so it's <laughs> yeah, being drunk on the dance floor is not a pretty sight. <laughs> so, and yeah, if naturally you can just dance and get rid of your inhibitions, then you're on a then you're on a real high. 
Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm all for it. Have you have you sort of tried any of that on your travels over to Bali or anything like that? Have you been to like Ubud or any of those places where those kind of things take off over there? Yeah, I think uh, especially in Bali, um, where drugs are very illegal also, and there's a lot of healing space there. So uh, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, possibly not so much connected with the dance music. There's, there's a lot of partying and there's a lot of DJs. All the Ibiza DJs go to Bali as well. Um, but um, personally, yeah, yeah, I do the when I'm in Bali, I do the New Year in um, this resort, Karma Kandara, which is beautiful. And I do the New Year, and I do drink quite a bit of the New Year. And then I go to a bud and um, do a big detox for a month, which is fantastic. And uh, turn vegetarian for a while, and just basically just clean out my body. So I do plenty uh, yoga, massage, massage, love massage and um, completely clean up my system, which is very good for returning to Ibiza. Now we're halfway through August, so you know, I appreciate what I've done in Bali. If only could, actually I could do it, you know, constantly. I suppose that's the challenge to all yoga people, isn't it? To actually make it part of your life. And I do fail a little bit, but um, definitely in Asia, I find myself inclined to lead a healthier lifestyle. How less you... temptation than in the beef. <laughs> less temptation. Well, I don't know if there is any less temptation in Bali, but you obviously take yourself away from it, and that is the key factor, isn't it? It's about discipline and having yeah. that ability to put the boundaries in place to really, you know, define what it is that you want in that moment. And I think when you remove yourself, yes, you're clearly saying to yourself, I don't want to be getting smashed, you know, for the next month. I want to be good. I want to be kind to myself. I want to look mm. after myself. I want to feel good. Yep. But ultimately, how does it feel when you've gone from, you know, quite a long period of uh, drinking and, and, you know, getting into a little bit of mission, perhaps, you know, when you go from hero to zero, what is that month like in January? Oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm really happy with it. I feel just completely renewed afterwards. So I don't find it a problem. I fast for 10 days and um, find it surprisingly easy. So and you kind of detox your mind as well. So um, by the end of it, I'm just sort of very light. I'm almost levitating. I feel like I'm an angel. <laughs> and my body really feels, I almost feel like your body's talking to you and saying, oh, thank you very much for looking after me. You know, um, you shut down your stomach for uh, 10 days. You know, your stomach's constantly working, isn't it, from the moment you're born. Um, so, you know, you shut it down for 10 days and you can almost think, oh, great, you know. I've given them a 10-day rest once a year. Fasting, I suppose, you know, different religions also do it all over the world, whether it's Ramadan or every religion has its own form of fasting. Um, I, I, I do it without the religion, I suppose. Apart <laughs> from when you're DJing and you fast for eight <laughs> hours, it's kind of the same thing. Maybe it's a bit like Ramadan. Um, yeah, no, well, I, I, I fast constantly for 10 days. So, yeah, actually, Ramadan, they're allowed to eat after midnight isn't it or after sunset um a bit like you and <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. so yeah you know I, I guess yes my sets yeah you're right my my sets are a bit like Ramadan I don't eat and um and in between you know, when I go to Asia then I stuff myself full of fantastic food because I love Thai food and generally I like Asian food but, I mean you know could you not I mean Obviously, it's easier to take yourself away from the temptation, as you call it. But, like, you know, would you be able to incorporate? Do you do 
yoga in Ibiza? Do you have a little practice that you turn to here to sort of get you through the summer? Is it is it literally just one or the other? When you're here, you're you're drinking, you're having fun, you're you're playing, and then when you go there, you're Mr. Health Guru. Um, I would like to be more con- um, to, to do it more here. I really would. That's my little angel going whipping me at the back. <laughs> go and do it. Um, but I'm pretty busy in the booth there in the summer, so I'm working two days a week and I'm travelling a lot. So he's even more, actually more reason to do it. <laughs> my conscience, my conscience. <laughs> um, but yeah, I should push myself. Maybe you'll push me. Well, maybe I will. That would be... Uh... <laughs> but I think, you know, that's when we all tell us, oh, I'm too busy. But when you start to say, I'm too busy to go to yoga, I'm too busy to meditate, I'm too busy yeah. to go to the gym, that's when, when you yeah. really need it, you know, when you're working and you need to have more balance in your life. So it's, you know, I understand the mindset of like, nope, I'm in work zone, nope, I'm in health zone. But, you know, I would... It's like when you don't drink six days a week and then you get absolutely trashed on a Sunday. It's like here, yeah. you know, it's, it's the... Yeah. The binging thing, isn't it? It's not. It's you know to have a little bit more of that in your life all through the summer would probably, you know, really really help you in the long term. Yeah, yeah, it would. And I'm going to change. <laughs> Actually, we'll do an interview and test me this time next year. <laughs> okay, let's make an annual date at the fish shack next time. We're we're going to come here during Ramadan and uh, see if I can get you to do yeah, some uh, some bending on and breathing. The table in the lotus position, <laughs> uh, meditating. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. I can't wait to see yeah, that. But I, I think, like, you know, just lastly, the pinnacle of, um, you know, this kind of period, as you said, like when you first kind of arrived here in the 80s and, and you know, the kind of the party scene. I mean, obviously, you've been a big part of it. So, I mean, how, how I'm going to have to ask this question, but what's, you know, the difference between things being very much more official and now we've got, like, Ushuaia, we've got these super clubs, we've got, you know, kind of like a very much more... Miami style kind of uh, looking club scene obviously space shut down you know things have seriously dramatically changed in terms of the the landscape of the nightlife here uh, the one thing I like about Satrencher is that it hasn't actually changed that much and if you actually take a photograph of the place uh, 20 years ago it's, it's almost the same so I'm in some respects I'm in my own little bubble and things well yeah things have changed um definitely but um yeah and it was completely different back in the day but I, I, I kind of you know when I first came here a hippie said to me he said oh man you've missed it you know you should have come here two years ago you've missed it so I don't want to be the old guy saying that to somebody younger now saying oh you should have come here 20 years ago or 25 years ago I said I've been here um because it was so different it's not um relevant to an 18 year old who's coming here for their first time so I tend to stay away from, although, yeah, you know, it's, it's changed, that's inevitable. And I suppose Abipa has taken that high-end Miami, Sandra Pay crowd and turned it into a big money-making machine. And it's, it's um, serving that. There was that wealth created. So if Abipa wasn't going to um, cater for it, then somebody else would. Um, so in some ways they've done quite well with it, although it's not quite my cup of tea, as you say. But there again, you can't complain. You know, there's something for everybody here. I'm, I'm, I'm just as happy sitting in this little shack <laughs> with the crickets around us. This is great. I actually don't really need a VIP table, personally. But other people may. Mm. So, um, 
yeah, I'm not going to be the, the grumpy old guy who complains about what it used to be. Um, it's just been an incredible journey, and it's been... I'm very glad I was one of the first DJs who came here and started playing on the beach, because um, there weren't really... There wasn't this beach bar thing. Um, yeah, there was always a little bit of music, but normally with really crap speakers. <laughs> and um, it was... You know, um, I was, when I look back in retrospect, I'm really happy I was here at the beginning, I suppose, of that. Um, so, yeah, that, it's been a great journey. I mean, the title of this podcast is The Reset Rebel, and I, I feel like you really, really qualify for that because, you know, there isn't any other DJs, really, at any other beach bars in Ibiza. I mean, there's, there's a couple, but really you were the instigator of that and the kind of founder you kind of got that crown really and it's like you know nothing's changed and it's the whole beach doesn't have that you know the vibe that Satrincha has it's still my favourite place after you know 20 years of coming here to go and reset myself the day after a night out I'll always go there and I know that I'm going to have a great time I'm going to jump off that pier I'm going to feel a million dollars as soon as I get my person underwater and the hangover will lift and then I know that I'm going to hear your music and maybe have a jug of sangria and the world's going to be wonderful again Right. <laughs> I wish I could do that. <laughs> I know, but you know, it's just the magic, magic gift that keeps on giving. And it, you know, yeah. 25 years in, you're you're still curing people's brutal hangovers. Uh, that's really nice to know. Yeah, I think that's been um, that was always always my intention um, to play different music. And playing outside is is completely different parameter than playing in a club, um, which is a, a closed environment. So, um, and then, you know, playing a long set, um, there's just so much variety of like really beatless tracks one can play and just sort of chill people out. As you say, it's the antithesis of playing in a club or being in a club and um, yeah, resetting your mind for the inevitable hangover. <laughs> people used to come from space actually, I think on a Tuesday morning. Um, after partying the whole weekend so there'd been the weekends there'd been manumission on a Monday there'd been space on a Tuesday morning and people would crash out on the beach on a Tuesday afternoon and I just watched them fall and I thought they don't need to dance anymore they've been doing this for 36 hours so it was a nice place for people to chill out more of a sanctuary through part of the day then you know obviously I put beats in and the whole day so you know within a day's music there's, um, you can you can go you can fall to sleep, uh, you can dance, you can jump and be happy, and you can cry. <laughs> well, you love it when people cry. That's perfect for you. I think exactly. I I, I kind of like it, you know, as a kind of precursor to either going to DC Ten on a Monday or we used to go there before We Love on Sundays, and then do the DC 10 on the Monday and then sometimes come back there for the reset on the Tuesday with the Jug of Sangria and the Jump in the Sea. So, you know, basically anything goes there and it's got like a really nice festival vibe. Um, there's people, you know, just camping out on the sand. There's no like overpriced sun lounges going on. Obviously there's a few, but mostly people are just towel to towel and they're yeah. absolutely finished when they arrive at sort of, you know, one, two o'clock. But by five, six o'clock, you basically got them up, sometimes dancing on tables. And when I came there the other week, there was a woman there yeah, just wearing a skirt and nothing else. And she was jumping around in front of the DJ booth having a, a marvellous time. And it just is one of those places where I feel like it's one of the last little pockets 
where anything still goes, like people aren't naked or, you know, getting up to all sorts. Yeah, there are perks to the job. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a bird's eye view. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, it's it's quite nice. As I said, it hasn't changed that much. We haven't got these expensive sun lounges. You know, if you want them, go to somewhere else. Um, uh, Yeah, we haven't got that. And back in the day, there were hardly any. And almost everybody was naked and dancing at the time, um, which is when I used to have to really concentrate just on the horizon and um, <laughs> put the blinkers on. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, know, you couldn't. You know, there's there's a lot of distractions in the Beatha whilst you're playing in front of a lot of people who are naked, obviously. Um, but you know, to keep the party going, you've got to um, play the next record, and it's running out, and you know you've only got 20 seconds left. <laughs> so yes. I've seen everything but done very little. I don't know if I believe that, John. There's a little twinkle in your eye that tells me a totally different story. Well, that's my twinkle in my eye. <laughs> and I mean, there must be a lot of people out there, because I love this story I was saying about the, the CDs that I used to buy, which are almost pretty much redundant in this day and age. But, you know, obviously the CDs were pre-empted by cassettes. You know, you used to sell a lot of your uh, mix mixed tapes um, back in the day and, and that sounded like quite a successful little spin-off as well yeah I know certainly um, the cassettes were amazing because I could actually um, barter with my cassettes throughout the whole summer <laughs> and I used to buy jeans and um, sarong and um, eat food at certain restaurants in exchange for my tapes so uh, yeah it was a really good currency for a while <laughs> But, uh, who, who needs Bitcoin? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John's a trencher dates. <laughs> I tell you what, they're probably worth about a couple hundred quid a go these days. Have you ever seen any of these tapes in the circulation? Um, people do send me copy, uh, photographs of their collection they still got um, with their cassette player. So, yeah, they've, they've still got them. But, um, yeah, I don't know how much they're worth, really. <laughs> Didn't you just have, like, boxes and boxes of them? Yeah. Yeah, like, like I've still got boxes and boxes of vinyl as well. So, um, yeah, I got. Um, there were lots of cassettes. <laughs> My illicit income. And you had some some man like staying up all night recording them for you. Well, basically, the the I would make a, a master tape and then um, I'd take that into the record shop in the evening. Um, the father used to sp- spend all night recording. 50 or 100 copies, I would wake up in the morning, um, photocopy the cover, cut them all up, uh, collect the cassettes from the old man who had arrived on his scooter, and um, then take a a taxi, because I didn't have a car at the time, I'd take a taxi to the airport, and that was my treat, I'm sorry, to the airport, to to the bar. And, Which um, is next to the airport? Yeah, or drive. You know, the, the second year I was driving, and they used to drive right up onto the beach, and offload my records, and then get all the beach bums to fit in all the the cassette covers, and um, and then yeah, flood my cassettes. Oh, how did you use to pay the beach bums? Uh, they got free coke or something like that, Coca Cola, <laughs> free breakfast. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's um, yeah, a, a great little job for those, them as well. I'm sure sitting yeah, on the beach do doing it. doing a little bit of that. I mean, <laughs> where do you get? Obviously, you play such a an eclectic and an unusual sort of mix of tracks. Do you make your own edits, or where do you find your music? I mean, 
Shazam is obviously a thing that I'm sure a lot of people stand in front of your DJ booth uh, doing, but I'm sure often they're quite disappointed with being unable to locate the track that they're looking for. Uh, yeah, lots of re-edits. So I get sent a lot of stuff. I search. A lot, I spend a lot of time, um, at least a day a week, one day a week, I suppose, hours a week, um, just searching for tracks. Um, and the internet is like, you know, the biggest record shop in the world. So um, there's loads of re-edits, new music coming out all the time. So yeah, I'm like, as I said, I'm, that's my enthusiasm. That's what keeps me, keeps me going, really. Um, the excitement of playing new stuff and continually changing the mix. So I'm not playing the same thing every day. So you must feel like to have come here and basically got this unbelievable job where you're basically living your dreams on a daily basis. I know it sounds incredibly cheesy, but you know that is what people want to do. They want to come to Ibiza. They want to find their passion. They want to you know live their yeah. their dream every single day. And you are still doing that 25 years in. I guess Ibiza's full of dreams, really. So people come for, you know to, for dreams here, and it's a kind of a dream land. And yeah, I mean, there's lots of people I know who are very wealthy, actually, Zurich bankers in particular, who would who always say, oh, I really would like to have your job. And I go, well, I'd really like to have your wages. Shall we just <laughs> change for a month? You know, I'll come work in your office for a month and you play here for a month. And uh, yeah, then they realize that they have their dream and their dream is just the dream. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do with all the money anyway, so... Oh no, how very, very, very tedious. <laughs> yeah. Probably going to spend it all on really big water pistols in Thailand for uh, the next Songkran. Yes, exactly. I'll get the biggest water pistol. <laughs> and what is the b- worst job you've ever done? Obviously, you must have done something rather rubbish before you came here at some point in the game, before you uh, became John Satrincha. What's your wheel now? Uh, Jonathan Gray. And um, my, When did I... you rename yourself? When I, when I started at Satrincha. Have you done it by Depot? Um, I was literally just as somebody came in and to the bar and into the DJ booth and said what's your DJ name and somebody else said John Satrencha and I went okay <laughs> so before you became John Satrencha what were you up to back home um, I was a photographer for years um, and I had my and I was sort of working in music music photography a bit of fashion I assisted a lot of photographers and um, just when I was sort of about to kind of make it as a photographer I suppose I was getting enough work um, I bought a flat in London and it was the day the stock market crashed and my car broke down and I got burgles all in the same morning Um, and they took everything but my records so I lost all my cameras and the insurance just ran out of the cameras and I hadn't I had insured the flat Oh, screwed. Um, so the same evening, a friend of mine rang me up um, from my hometown, Cheltenham, and he asked me, he, he just opened up this club in Cheltenham, and he said, you know, Johnny, I know you've got loads of records. Um, do you want to come and DJ? So I said, yeah. And that was in 87 or 88, I suppose, just the beginning of this sort of house music revolution. And... Um, and I was I was buying always buying records and I was buying records in London so I was just buying all this variety of music whether it was hip hop reggae state 808 the early rave tracks and I was kind of mixing everything up without realizing about the rave scene and then the I sort of 
it was younger kids who sort of made me aware of mixing and the beat man. And I was going, no, no, I'm going to play reggae arts. This, I'm going to play this. Like, <laughs> they go, no, no, just play house music. And I kind of refused. I was like, what are you talking about? And then I went to a rave, one of these free raves, and um, spent the whole summer raving, I suppose, in 87 or 88. I don't remember. And, um, and realized what, the, you know, what a, an amazing movement it was and quickly learned how to beat mix. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say a sign of a, a misspent youth? Oh, yeah, music. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose my, my fortunate, I'm fortunate in being older in, in this w line of work because um, when I was 40, I thought, you know, there's going to be some kids are going to kick me off the decks or something. But having that sort of history of music behind me and um, being aware of music from a very early age, um, primarily through having a sister who was 10 years older than me and used to play the Beatles full blast. So my first sort of, not visual memory, but hearing was actually, I think, the Beatles. <laughs> and, and, and all those screaming you know, on the TV. The screaming. The screaming, yeah. So that's, that's my first memory, really. And then um, I was brought up in a house. My parents had a house. We had a language school. And we had uh, foreign students staying with us uh, from all around the world. So I was sort of brought up in a very sort of international household. And they were all a little bit older than me, and they used to buy music. Um, and so I was always, always in the house, I was, uh, you know, reminded, my, my father used to play old big bands, sort of, um, Pat's Domino and Glenn Miller and all that sort of stuff. And then the kids around me were sort of playing Woodstock and Jimi Hendrix and all that sort of thing. Um, so I had um, that installed into me before I even started studying at school. So that became foremost... Um, influence in my life before studying. So yeah, misspent childhood. <laughs> you did, did go to school though. I did go to school, but I spent most time listening to music. <laughs> and that was my... Um, and it seemed more relevant at the time. You know, I, was, I, mean, I enjoyed history at, um, at school, but it seems to be that music was creating a revolution that was so relevant at the time. Um, so you sort of, you know, the juxtaposition of watching or listening to Woodstock and then hearing of the Vietnam War at the time seemed really poignant, you know what I mean? And used to see these documentaries and, you know, then there was Apocalypse Now and Jimi Hendrix and the whole soundtrack to the Vietnam War was uh, very poignant. And, um, and I was a bit too young for the hippie movement, but, you know, you've, you've, well, everybody believed that they could change the world. And there was going to be this big change, which unfortunately hasn't... In some ways, it's resonated, the sort of original hippie philosophies or spiritual philosophies or religious philosophies of, you know, love thy neighbour, basically. <laughs> it's just like... But, um, and, you know, music has been a revolution um, culturally. Um, again, it's going, you know, going back to dance. Um, so it's something, you know, it's a litmus thing that happens in the 60s and it has caught fire all over and exploded all around the world. So in that way it's really great. Um, but yeah, music in my youth was just, just so important. Um, whether it's going through a sort of Bowie stages and then punk rock and then new romantic and fashion in a way, but I suppose in the 70s um, 
fashion and music was all about being, in a, in a way, individual. Whereas everybody now tends to follow the uniforms or labels. So um, back in you know, the punk days, it was all about making your own clothes and, and wearing makeup <laughs> and stuff like that. Did you go through that phase? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went through them all. Well, I was a massive Bowie fan, so you sort of he his the stage performance of um, Ziggy Stardust and all that sort of stuff when I was twelve, just like wow, you know, does he come from Mars? What is going on? What is this? Who is this guy? <laughs> so um, yeah, that was very influential, and the Did punk we... movement as well. You know, huge, um, just sort of been in sweaty little clubs and um, that uh, crazy energy. But uh, it wasn't, the, I don't know if it was the music or the energy, although it was the music and the energy. It was like, <laughs> very vibrant. And lots of bloody noses by accident, you know. So, yeah. I always remember leave, leaving a punk gig, it was actually like, you know, you probably, somebody probably knocked your nose because everybody was pogo dancing. So there was blood everywhere or somebody else's blood all over your t shirt, which was, um, your t shirt was a picture of the queen with a safety pin through her nose. And you had gob and sticky stuff in your hair and lager. <laughs> all cider and you'd see the dance floor afterwards and um, so I worked actually at a few consoles when I was younger and you'd see the, the dance floor and you think wow broken glass blood and all this squidgy stuff everybody, everywhere great night out <laughs> <laughs> what was the squidgy stuff? God knows <laughs> and like, yeah, there was all this hairspray and stuff as well so you know people used to dri- dress up and just go completely wild but in a much smaller scale in a small pub with you know 50 or 100 people uh, listening to the clash or whatever um, as opposed to now you know huge dance festivals what's the equivalent to that now in your mind the equivalent of that now um drum and bass I guess I went to a festival I played at the garden festival secret garden festival a couple of years ago which was great, and I found myself actually in a drum and bass tent, and I really enjoyed it. It was totally, well, I danced for about 10 minutes. <laughs> it was like being back in the old days at a Iggy Pop concert, or where well, you'd be doing that for 90 minutes in a concert. <laughs> great way to shake yourself up. Very healthy as well. There's a very specific dance maneuver, I think, that goes with drum and bass. It's, it's very much in the hips and the bum. And that is just like a proper workout. I mean, the thighs the day after. Uh, uh, yeah. I used to go to festivals as well when I was at university. And Homelands was my favourite. And I just used to go there and get in the drum and bass tent and just, yeah, for about six or seven or eight hours, actually. And the next day, I could barely walk. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> I don't know if it was a drum and bass tent, but it was, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's still that energy, I suppose, which is great. We need that. We still live in quite a suppressed society, and you know, when you go back to London and you hear about all these t- these um, uh, post-circuit TV and face recognition cameras and all this sort of stuff. So it's like you know, you know, as a kid, I sort of read about 1984, and we got beyond 1984, but it's you know, perhaps it's going to be 2024, <laughs> which will be uh, you know, everybody is on camera. <clears throat> so there's that sort of underlying. Pressure, I suppose, and uh, you need dance and, and places like that to arenas like that where you can just let go, get rid of all the angst. 
I mean, that's exactly it. But I mean, do you feel like you could ever go back and live in England now? Um, I don't know. I think I've been in Ibiza probably too long. And I don't know if I call Ibiza my home because it's a transient place. It's very transient here. So um, I've got my, my story is that my parents passed away, never been married, no kids, and I'm completely free. And I've actually got used to that, and I actually really enjoy that, and that's how I can deal with um, in a, a Ibiza in a way. Um, and through music, music, all the people I meet through my music, they've become, I don't want to sound so cliche, but it's sort of become my family in a sense. I'm probably better family than I could actually desire for my real family. Because <laughs> the remainder which I don't get on with so well, or I don't see so much. Um... And it's very intimate as well, what I do with my DJing. So I find that those um, family moments are replaced with um, moments that I get through my work. Um, I do feel really at home in Asia. So in, in a sense, that's becoming my, a place where I feel very um, at ease and, and I like the mindset of the generally of, of Buddhist people um, not that I'm pursuing um, my spiritual path in being Buddhist as such but I find myself very happy in that with that kind of mindset of people and I have a lot of Thai friends who um, are really religious and very and very nice people and very polite and, and uh, very sweet and very gentle and very quiet and I like that very much so um, in, in a sense that's becoming my where I feel at home. Yeah. <laughs> but home is kind of like wherever you wherever you lay your hat, really, isn't it? These days. I yeah, mean, yeah, basically. totally, totally. Actually, um, through it was a big dilemma in my forties through um, friends who got married and 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 then actually losing my own parents when I was younger, and then sort of having to, this dilemma of what is home. Um, but yeah, now I find actually wherever I go, I kind of repeat, go back to certain venues and certain, the same places I play every year in, in um, Asia. And it's literally like going back home. So, um, yeah, and I'm very happy that actually every, everywhere is home. And it, I'm even happier going to a new place because then I discover a new home. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I'm very happy with it to have wings like that. It's a very, it's, I'm blessed with it. Not that I, you know, not that I disrespect all, you know, marriage is a wonderful thing and, and having a partnership is, is, is a great thing to have. But if you don't find it, then you have to be content within yourself. And I've sort of gone through that, I suppose. And I'm, I find my own inner contentment through um, traveling or uh, wandering around on a scooter in um, Chiang Mai or somewhere in the mountains in... in um, northern thailand or just getting lost somewhere and i feel totally at peace with myself so that's a nice way to um enter into uh, later life <laughs> i think the connotations of the word home are, are quite yeah they're quite strong and they're quite conditioned as to what we're we're told home should be it should be a you know a semi-detached house with you know a couple of kids and a, and a car and a you know all of these things that we're believed to be that you know our later life should look like but actually i mean things have changed and if, if, if you said before that it's a little bit like a lottery to to meet the perfect person yeah. and to to want to have a child with that person and create a life 
it's a big commitment there's a lot of it you know not working out for a lot of people in the in the way technology has developed there's too many other options out there the grass is always greener so you know it is more difficult to create that life but the fact that you've managed to find this sense of inner peace and contentment you know is bigger and better than happiness it's contentment is you know that's a, a more permanent state of mind and something that you can take with you wherever you go and create home yeah. wherever you are because if you're feeling content and at home in your own body then you are at home wherever you are yeah it's been a bit of a journey could have been easier possibly <laughs> but I guess as long as you get there eventually um, but yeah no, I, I, I was as a kid I never thought I fitted into suburbia or into that society of you know, oh gosh you've got to get married before you're 30 or you know, you've got, there's this time to do this particular thing and find this partner and get this job and to make enough money. It's a bit like, um, as the days go by, the Talking Heads song, or, you know, how did I get here? How did I get here? And, you know, the guy's got everything. <laughs> he's suddenly got to 40. He's got his job, he's got his partner, he's got his dog, he's got his wife. Why don't you tell me And it's not quite what, maybe what he expected. So um, I just didn't feel I could fit into that. And I kind of rebelled against it also through music. Um, but now I've learned, you know, it's like you know, sitting here in August, it's like most of the people I'm playing to are actually part of that society. So it's all very well rebelling against it. You have to have that society there in the first place in order to, to live your alternative life. Um, so I actually, so I, I respect the society that I come from and the people who do that work. Um, and I'm very happy that I've managed to sidestep it. <laughs> Um, but I guess for a lot of people it's not that easy either, you know. It is a step into the unknown. So um, a lot of people romantically may think about my job as a dream job, but it is—it was a step into the unknown. And um, you know, your own journey or my own journey was um, really not knowing where I was going for some time. Um, and I think a lot of people were preconditioned to... Uh, the desire to feel secure so I let go of that you know and I sort of, sort of let go of the desire to be secure or whatever and so you take a big step and you think how far am I going to fall and there's that second where you go oh, I don't know where I'm going but you actually find out that it wasn't such a big leap in the first place or oh, you landed safely fortunately <laughs> us came to this island it's it's the same thing when I had a job it was all mapped out for me and then I got here and the job fell through and it all turned to you know turned in a very different direction to the one that I was believed that it was going to be when I arrived here and, and, the, and the goalposts completely moved and were actually taken away and I just thought Christ you know, what the hell am I doing here what am I going to do how am I going to make this work it is the unknown and I think that's exactly yeah. why most people don't take that step or that leap because it is it's the fear that will always hold you back from living your wildest dreams because ultimately no one likes the non-secure where's the safety net kind of you know step forward it's it's terrifying yeah and in some ways I, I um, <laughs> actually thrive on that <laughs> actually gets me I mean, again, going back to Asia, I love being in Asia and like some places in like in a completely foreign environment 
when nobody speaks the language, the food's completely different, everything smells completely different, I am the alien. And it's, I kind of like that edginess of feeling that, and being alone also, and it's sort of feeling slightly risque in a way. Um, sometimes, when I, you know, I, I, go to, um, yeah, I go to Thailand a lot, and I've been to Bangkok, and I go around the, like, the really poor areas, the ghettos, where t- tourists don't really go, and people kind of ask me, like, what are you doing? <laughs> but I, I kind of like that sort of getting lost in the city kind of feeling sometimes as well especially in, as an alien, or in Hong Kong, or, or in um, a lot of Asian places, where it naturally, by, by default, because of your, the way you look, <laughs> you feel different, you know, you're different. So I, like, I kind of like that challenge, in a way. Isn't that a sting song? I'm an alien, I'm an evil alien. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an Englishman in New York, something like that. Yeah, 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 I'm sort of, um, uh, yeah, Englishman in somewhere in Asia I <laughs> lost it's probably a better combo than being a yeah and on the other, you know, the other thing I, you know, I like in Asia as well you know, as I said I get lost out in the mountains I switch my Google Maps off and I just go off into, uh, into the mountains and go through small farming communities and villages and I end up talking to people and it's great you know people actually ask me where I'm going and I love telling them that I don't know but you know everything's going to be fine <laughs> and and Thai people tend to... The, my personal story of Thailand is that uh, I, I, I always have a joke with everybody. There's always a little bit of a joke or a reason to smile, an excuse to smile. If there's any excuse to smile, you can smile. And that's... Um, for me, that kind of works over there. Whereas here, it doesn't... Going back to London and smiling over everybody doesn't quite work. <laughs> or saying swaddy car and holding the prayer. Absolutely, that doesn't work. So I have to switch back to being English again. Which is... Which is where the culture shock comes in, you know. So yeah, you know, some different places could be different head spaces. There's a definite sense of childishness and mischief about you, which I love. There's a very, very much your inner child is more to the surface than I would have imagined. Not that I've known you for for, for very long, but it just <laughs> feels like it's it's there. It's always ready to kind of pop out. Yeah, and I. <laughs> Yeah, I, think, I don't know where that comes from. I think it was my father, actually. My father was very childish, in a sense, um, which really annoyed my mother a lot. Um, <laughs> so I think I got it from him. Uh, yeah, and... Yeah, it's again, again this sort of Buddhist thing, I suppose. Um, it's really funny. I'd, I've got a... Um, I think I may have told you this story before. I told, tell this story to two people. I'm, my ex-Thai um, uh, girlfriend... We're really good friends now, and she's a very religious lady and she used to take me to temples a lot and last year I said oh take me to a temple you haven't taken me to a temple for ages oh yeah yeah sure I'll take you to a temple and she took me to this area um, where she has her religious instruction and I kind of thought we're not in the normal kind of temple environment and then she said oh come into this office and talk to the monk I thought oh great I'm going to go and talk to the monk and have my blessing with the monk and with her which is always a pleasure you know and um, it wasn't at all should I actually come me into going in for a four-hour uh, kind of lecture and instruction, Buddhist instruction, which was actually brilliant, but I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> and um, I ended up uh, meditating for like three hours and then chatting and talking. <laughs> so you get kind of sometimes this, you know, you get... Uh, I like, also like the thing with Buddhism is it's not actually forced upon you. It wasn't like a trapdoor, you know, I've been grabbed off the street by um, 
Scientology or something like that, you know, which happened to me when I was a kid. I remember being grabbed off the street by Scientologists and told to go through this test thing, and, and they sent me mail. For, my parents found out, and I was, you know, I wasn't affected by them, but, you know, it's, um, it's, it's also a very difficult path to find your own spiritual, religious nirvana. It's a tricky road because you can get conned. <laughs> and dragged off down the garden path and yeah. uh, Bible bashed out. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, yeah, but yeah, I guess to some, to end of that, um, is it going to, as long as we find our own smart path, it more or, less, more or less ends up in the same area, the same space. Do you, I mean, this is going to sound like the most cheesy question in the world, but like, is... I mean, obviously those are such sort of meditative moments that you have, gazing out to see it's a trincher for eight hours on end. You know, that's almost like your own little religion in itself. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it is, yeah. yeah. You must have quite a few epiphanies throughout the day of just gazing out and watching people. And... Yeah, no, it's really beautiful. Some, you know, what I really like is when I'm in sort of a free-flow mood and I'm not quite sure what I'm going to play next and the weather's changing and... The scene is changing in front of me, and you just get totally influenced by the nature of around and the people around and the vibe. So it's almost that there's something else driving me, and that um, to get into this sort of a creative state where um, it becomes almost easy, just sort of free flowing, just playing with the playing with the environment around me. So um, those, yeah, those I love. That's why I love doing. That's why I do it. Um, but you have to be careful, you have to be in the right state of mind to, do, to reach that point. So, you know, if I abuse myself too much and I'm drinking, drinking too much or get, into, get involved with the, the wrong crazy ladies and, uh, you know, lead the, the, you know, the rock and roll lifestyle. Well, it started off with the rock and roll lifestyle and then you had the, the DJ lifestyle. So, you know, a DJ, I'm, I'm quite grateful that I've had the longevity that I've had within this world because all the temptations are there. And a lot of the DJs who become super famous, they become super famous for 18 months, like a pop group would. You know, there were one percent or minus one percent would have the success or the longevity, um, and a brain at the end of it. So, within all that temptation, there's there can be a lot of tragedy, and you can completely destroy yourself. Uh, so it's great, you know, it's, it's, it's all very well being in this Pandora's box where you can do anything you want. But actually, if you don't, if you lose the discipline, um, the, eventually it will affect your music and um, seriously affect your life and your lifestyle. And you'll end up in the Betty Ford Clinic or whatever. <laughs> it's quite interesting, I was listening to... Um, uh, Fleetwood Mac documentary and you know through their, the, how they came through the, out through the other end of serious cocaine addiction and um, you know they yeah I, I guess they're they're still intact but they the, it was the discipline of keeping the group together that kept them together and to override their addictions and that's how they've had the longevity to stay in the business for so long. Um, Whereas if I, you know, possibly if I become super, a superstar, John's Trencher Superstar Stadium DJ, and my 18th month career, over 18 months with all that temptation available to you, um, I may not be talking to you here today. Or maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe completely, uh, 
maybe completely brain damaged. In- incapacitated. Yeah, it's incapacitated. <laughs> I don't think that could ever happen to you. And, you know, you, you, I think the fact that the gift that you got given was the venue and, you know, to be there and to take your musicality and your incredible gift to that exact space. Mm. It's the combination of the two things, but it's never... You were, it was never going to be catapulted, perhaps, off, off the Richter scale in the way that it could have been. Yeah. And it's almost kept you in a more a position of longevity. And the fact that you haven't abused that position, not too much anyway, along the way, and have managed to kind of steer the ship in the general direction of, you know, keeping things on a reasonably even keel, knowing you've got long sets and, and a whole summer to get through. Not a lot of people can do that. Possibly not. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just a fact. It's not. It's not a you know a statement. It's a. It's an actual. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, as I said, I, I think I took myself to my limits in the nineties, and then quickly realised that it was affecting the music. And and really, I think with anything creative, you have to give it sort of a hundred percent. And then everything, I think everything else in life takes care of itself in a sense. Um, so you, you've got to keep yourself in check, keep your, a certain amount of morality. And um, don't get corrupted too much <laughs> in order to survive in the business. Um, yeah, it's something you can't abuse because most, so many people want this kind of lifestyle. Um, but as I said, it's all the temptations there, so it's so easy to abuse. But having said that, Keith Richards is still alive, and um, but you know, many have fallen by the wayside. So yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm glad I'm just in a good headspace, and uh, I'm, I'm happy, and I'm not bothered about getting older, and if people still like my music, and I'm still getting the same effect and, and pleasing people, then great, that's all that really matters, and everything else takes care of itself, really. And I don't really want, you know, big fast cars or to live in too many, a few five-star hotels, but not too many. <laughs> You've got to keep it real by staying in a few Thai beach shacks as well in amongst the, uh, in exactly, amongst the luxury. Yeah. It's the contrast, actually, because you know when I play in Bali, I play in a super, it's beautiful resort, um, which has one of the best beaches in Bali. It's white sand, and it's a super beach, and it's got this, um, it's up on a cliff, and it's got its own little lift that goes down to the beach. Super bubble, wonderful. Um, but after that, I go and stay in a homestay which is the complete opposite. It's like $10 a day and I'm living with a Balinese family and living like a Balinese person for a a few days. So, um, yeah, that keeps me excited. It's the contrast. I think that is, you know, the spice of life, isn't it? It's it's being able to mix it up and uh, be able to feel comfortable in both environments and feel, yeah, joyful and uh, content, as you put it. So um, I think that's beautiful. And obviously you will never change after 25 years of being barefoot on the beach at Satrincheren and you know literally enriching the lives of uh, so many people that come to the island I know that we're going to have to wrap this up now I'm so sorry to have taken up so much of your time but I have absolutely loved talking to you it's been an absolute joy and thank you so so much for joining us here on the Reset Rebel my pleasure really a real pleasure to be here thanks very much Joe Reset Rebel coming to you every day.